Hello and welcome to another edition of TGC Midweek. My name is Jacob and we're so thankful for you for tuning in. With me as always is Michael Novak. Michael, how you doing, man? Doing good. Uh, I didn't expect it to be 90 degrees today. Yes, in it's San been Antonio. pretty hot. Yep. Um, but other than that, doing okay. That's awesome. All right. So um, this is going to be a little bit of a longer pod, I think, than our, our past couple. So uh, fair warning to those listening. Um, we got a couple of questions that we want to go through. We started this podcast first and foremost um, as a question and answer format, and we want to take your questions seriously and try to offer some responses to those. Uh, but we also want this to be uh, a podcast where um, we can get into some other information as well and maybe do a couple of, of mini series on a variety of topics. So we're also going to be kicking off a four week mini series on church government today. Um, but we're going to dive into some questions first. We got a couple of heavy hitters this week. All right. So the first question says this, what exactly is TGC's position on the Sabbath and what are the biblical reasons for it? Specifically, why are we less conservative than some, for instance, those who don't believe in eating out on the Sabbath? What would TGC consider as breaking the Sabbath? Or if there are no, or if there's no official position, what would you, Michael, consider as breaking the Sabbath? This is a question that oftentimes folks don't normally think about, but when you read the scriptures and even the gospels, you see that the Sabbath is a big deal Mm -hmm. to Jesus, to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, to the disciples, uh, to the Jewish people at large. And it's a big deal because uh, it's a part of the Ten Commandments. It's actually the fourth commandment that we see in Exodus chapter 20, but you can go even before that and pick up uh, at Genesis chapters one and two, after God creates uh, the heavens and the earth in the span of what Genesis says is six days, he takes the seventh day in order to rest. And I don't think that God was tired mm-hmm. after creating the heavens and the earth, um, but he took that day uh, off in order to admire his work, um, to rest from what he was engaged in on those other six days. Uh, and then you fast forward to Exodus 20, And he inserts uh, this command uh, that folks should uh, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, I think it's super important to remember the context in which this was written. God's people had just uh, left Egypt. And if you remember the story of the Exodus, uh, they left um, after having been enslaved for many years. Not only uh, were they enslaved, but Pharaoh uh, made their work harder and harder as the years went by, so much so that they likely never got a day of rest. Mm-hmm. It was backbreaking, never-ending work that they were engaged in. And so when I think of the Sabbath, I think of two things, the first of which there's a spiritual purpose for the Sabbath. Uh, we are called to set aside a day for worship, for prayer, to be in community with God's people um, as his church um, in New Testament times. Um, and then there's a physical aspect. We are human beings and we're limited in uh, our capacity for physical labor. Uh, we're limited in our capacity for what we can do. Uh, and we get tired and worn out and our bodies simply need refreshment and rest. And so in order to be properly human, we take a day off a week mm-hmm. in order to replenish and renew our physical bodies alongside our spiritual bodies. So what about this idea 
um, that you shouldn't go out to eat on the Sabbath or um, that you can't participate in recreational activities on the Sabbath. I've heard that one before. I've literally never thought about whether or not I should go out to eat after church. So what's the piece, uh, what's Trinity Grace's position on this? What do you think? I think it's worthwhile actually stopping and thinking about those questions. Oftentimes we don't, I don't think you're in the minority uh, when it comes to those sort of questions. Um, and so what I would say is that the Sabbath should be carved out, um, and you should engage in things that bring you rejuvenation, uh, both physically and spiritually, um, that bring you refreshment and enjoyment, um, that even bring celebration to your heart and your soul. And so, uh, for an accountant, uh, for instance, um, to take a break from accounting would be important. Mm-hmm. Um, but if he finds rest and refreshment from mowing the grass, from working in the yard, from taking a hike with his family, uh, then that is perfectly, um, I think, within the bounds of yeah. what's appropriate. I think that's so important. As someone who has an office job, the ability to get out in actual air under an actual sun and you know around actual trees is deeply restful, sure. even if you're hiking 10 miles and it's brutal. It can be worshipful too, yes. um, because you're engaged in God's creation and experiencing uh, his good gift to you in that way. So can I do schoolwork on Sunday? Because I do 90% of my schoolwork on Sunday. That's funny. I actually <laughs> dealt with this a lot and I would encourage students that are full-time students to actually take a break from schoolwork and studying mm. on the Sabbath. But what that requires is hard work the other six yeah, days. Yeah, you really got to bust it. Yep. And so, in order to experience rest well and Sabbath well, you have got to be disciplined and work well during the week. Mm. And you'll find, I think, that as you engage in that discipline of hard work and good rest, yeah. that you're actually living according to your design mm. and it fulfills something in your heart that. Um, uh, that you didn't even know was there. Yeah, this is an interesting topic. Um, and we're definitely only hitting the surface of this question because there's a lot that we could go into about um, what it means to work well and what it means to rest well sure. and the importance of uh, Sabbath and everything that goes in there. This might actually be, be a good thing for us to dive into as far as like a, a two or three week little mini series about what the Sabbath looks like. Maybe that's something that we put that we put on the parking lot. Yes, I, I'd love that. So uh, this next question um, is also a Ten Commandments question. Um, similar question for the Second Commandment. It says, "I'm finding a lot of conservative Reform people who strongly believe that we should take the Second Commandment seriously, which includes pictures of Jesus in children's Bibles and Jesus in the Christmas Nativity." I'm assuming we don't hold that since we use the Jesus Storybook Bible. So, what exactly would be a two CV? I think that's Second Commandment violation, mm-hmm. but I don't know. Um, and why biblically is it okay to have pictures of Jesus? Is it because he came to earth where people could actually see him? So maybe it only applies to God, the father. I'm thinking also of Hebrews 12, where we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus, Mm -hmm. which we might find hard to do without picturing him. Um, which some people think is a two CV. I, I did not know that that required an acronym. (laughs) It make it makes it sound that much more important yes. and serious um, when you put an acronym. When something like has that. an acronym, they've made it. You know, yes. When you is. have a TLA, yeah, a three it, letter acronym. The acronym acronym is uh, adds some panache, and it's a good question. Yes, uh, too. So, what do you think about this? Um, Why don't we start with 
reading the second amendment just to refresh folks' memories. Should I read the second amendment or the second uh, commandment? Hey, both. Okay. Well, this I don't have a Texas copy of the constitution all. in front of me, but I do have God's words. So Shall not be infringed. The second commandment. <laughs> okay. Let's do that. Uh, the second commandment, um, uh, says this, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that's in heaven above or that's in the earth beneath or that's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I'm the Lord your God and I'm a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So that is the um, second commandment, and it's basically prohibiting God's people from making any carved images uh, in order to bow down and worship. And it's important to realize the context in which uh, to which Moses is writing, uh, or God is uh, speaking through mm-hmm. Moses. Um, and that's uh, Israel finds themselves surrounded by nations. Um, that make carved images and worship them. Mm-hmm. In fact, while Moses is up on the mountain receiving instruction from God, the Israelites are at the bottom of the mountain making a golden calf mm-hmm. so that they could have something to bow down and worship. And we know that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, they are spirits, um, and they don't have a physical form. Um, but God the Son uh, actually in his incarnation, took on flesh mm-hmm. and uh, in a human form. And so um, while I think that we've got to be careful um, about crafting uh, an image of Jesus even, a lot of times you'll go to churches and you'll see the picture of Jesus with wispy blonde hair and, and blue, blue eyes. eyes. That's yep. right. Yep. I refer to it as Jesus' senior picture, um, which was <laughs> never taken. Uh, and um, we've got to be looks remarkably uh, Anglo for a, that's for a right. first century Jew. We might be surprised <laughs> with uh, what Jesus looks like when we see him with our own eyes in the new heavens and the new earth. Um, but I think that uh, we've got to be careful with how we picture and uh, and and throw out images of Jesus. Um, and I don't think we need images of Jesus. I think the scriptures are completely sufficient yeah. uh, for salvation and for faith and for knowing Jesus. But the fact that he took on human flesh does mean mm-hmm. something, um, and I don't think it's inherently sinful to have uh, an image of Jesus in the Jesus Storybook Bible as yeah. a human being. And that's har- that would hardly be considered an idol if it, if it's literally sure. a picture book of historical events. That's a you have great to depict point. the historical figure. And and now that we're in New Testament times, the incarnation has occurred. It, it's very hard to think of the name Jesus without an uh, an image of a human popping into your mind. Yeah. Um, but we do need to be careful about what that image, um, what we do with that image, and how we use that image. Um, but God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, um, to have a, an image in mind um, could be problematic. And definitely if we are crafting carved images uh, to which we bow down Mm. to and worship, that's definitely a violation of the second commandment. Yeah, absolutely. It might even be worth doing a whole series on just the Ten Commandments themselves because we could go into— And idols in our life now aren't necessarily carved images. They're more ideas and pressures that we feel in our society and culture. And so that's why I think it's 
really great to think about the idols of beauty or success or money, money yep. um, or family. Um, these are the things that we tend to bow down mm-hmm. to in our hearts and worship. Um, and oftentimes they can have, uh, um, very physical, uh, pictures associated with them. Mm-hmm. Um, like the, the image of a perfect family. Yeah. Um, a lot of those are good things. You can sure. think of people making church or pastors making their ministry yes. an idol. Yep. And I've heard it once described that an idol is making a good thing, a God thing. Mm, yeah. That's um, a good way and to it's put a it. good pithy way to think about idolatry. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, let's transition now from those questions. We always want to take some time at the beginning of these to answer your questions, take them seriously. So always send them in uh, as you have them. But let's transition now to this topic of church government. So this is something that um, may be surprising to you, but maybe not, has been on a lot of people's minds. Um, some might find this to be a bore fest. So fair warning. If you're like me and you're kind of a nerd, you, you get into this stuff. So, um, but there's always a lot of questions that come up around how the church is organized and governed and kind of, you know, mm-hmm. who's in charge. Yes. So why don't we just start with what the word Presbyterian means? Because that has its own governmental implications there. And what are other forms of church government that you find outside, you know, elsewhere in Christendom? Yeah. Generally speaking, uh, there's three main forms of church government that folks normally experience in Christianity. The first is what we'd call hierarchical church Mm -hmm. government, um, which uh, is basically top down. Somebody's in charge uh, and makes decisions uh, like the Pope in the Mm -hmm. Roman Catholic Church. Hierarchical government is also seen in uh, the Methodist Church, um, the Episcopal Church, um, where there is a very clear order of who's in charge, who's at top. There's a flow chart in place. Do you know in how people get to those positions in those particular organizational structures? Um, you know, I off the top of my head, um, yeah, I, I get. I mean, there's there's a college of cardinals in the Roman Catholic Church that's made up of some 115 yeah. cardinals. And but they, even those cardinals, aren't they like appointed? I believe they're appointed okay. by yeah. the Pope himself. Oh. Um, and so when the that's Pope dies, those cardinals will gather in Rome in order to elect the next Pope. Uh-huh. And so it can be a little bit insular. Um, yeah. And uh, so that's the hierarchical okay. form of church government. Um, uh, the other form of church government that many of us have likely run into, especially in the Southeast and uh, this part of the Southwest of the United States, is a, a congregational form of church government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's most commonly seen in the uh, Baptist church, yeah, yeah. where the congregation, if any decisions are made, a vote is taken at the congregation, and it's basically majority wins. Mm-hmm. And the third form of church government is what's known as a Presbyterian form of church government. And we get that word Presbyterian um, from the Bible itself, the Greek New Testament. Mm-hmm. Anytime you see the word, the English word elder, uh, and you see that a number of times in your New Testament, specifically in Titus chapter 1, uh, verse 5, where Paul gives the qualifications for elders. Um, you see it in Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 17, where Paul meets with the Ephesian elders before he moves on in his journey to take the gospel out. Uh, and then you see it in Acts chapter 15 uh, at the Jerusalem Council where the apostles and the elders meet. And that English word elders is the Greek word presbyterios. Mm. 
Um, and that's where we get our word Presbyterian. And it basically means that it is a plurality of men that have been appointed by congregations in order to lead them in spiritual matters. And we still call them elders. And we still call them elders mm-hmm. today. And so the folks that will lead Trinity Grace Church uh, someday in the near future will be called the elders of our church. Yeah. And there's two different offices in our denomination. There's a teaching elder and a ruling elder. Teaching elders are ministers of the gospel and sacraments, and that's me. I'm a teaching elder in our denomination, even though I'm not necessarily an elder in terms of age. Um, oh, you flatter yourself, Yeah, Michael. that's right. It's more of a, <laughs> um, a designation, an office designation. Um, and then you've got ruling elders uh, that are elected by the congregation. Normally, these are men that are um, engaged in other sorts of vocations mm-hmm, on mm-hmm. a Monday to Friday sort of basis. Um, but they are elected by the congregation to basically shepherd uh, them and uh, and oversee the church. Sure. So so you've emphasized that elders are are men. Is there a reason that they are men specifically and and are not open to women? Yes. Uh, I mean the the Bible is is fairly clear. I mean you, you see it in First Timothy chapter uh, one um, specifically. And let me flip there real sure, fast. Sure. Um, this is a question I didn't expect, Jacob. Yep, yep. So, that one was not in the uh, um, pre-podcast. You guys just know that Jacob is, is I on tend to your do this side <laughs> asking the hard-hitting questions here on TGC yeah. midweek. Yep. And so we find Paul addressing this topic in 1 Timothy 2, and he says this um, in verse 8. I'll just start there. It says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what's proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. And so here you get a sense that Paul Mm -hmm. is encouraging uh, Timothy, who is starting churches across Asia Minor, um, uh, about how the household of God is meant to be set up. And in this passage, it's fairly clear that he intends for men uh, to exercise authority and to be the ones that are teaching on a regular basis. And so, um, and he goes back to a creation in order to kind of make that point that Adam was created first, Eve was created from Adam. And I think it's important to say uh, just in passing um, that this is not a comment on the value or the worth of a male or a female. Both male and female were made in God's image. This is a comment on how the household of God is to be set up and ordered according to God's will and standard. And so I also think it's important in my own opinion uh, to say that women um, outside of the church um, are free to pursue vocational mm-hmm. and career activities um, like anyone else would be yeah. in our culture. Um, but within the household of God, within the church, this is the order uh, that we see in the New Testament, sure. that men are called to be yeah. elders. So let's let's return to this topic of of elders. Didn't mean to hit you with, with that curveball. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay, so so you have this group of elders that are kind of um, they're in charge of of the local church. How did they get there? 
What are some of their responsibilities? How many are there? Yes. Let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And so they get there by way of the congregation. Okay. Um, in some ways, it's a representative form of government, mm-hmm. for lack of a better phrase, um, where the congregation identifies men, um, nominates men, and then uh, elects a certain number of men to become elders of the church. And the group of elders are what we call the session of the church. Okay. Um, and so uh, they are tasked with a number of different responsibilities, primarily with what we'd call shepherding responsibilities. Um, they're in charge of caring for the flock. Um, and so it won't just be me as a pastor that cares for folks. Hopefully uh, the burden will be shared by yeah. these men uh, one day soon, where they're praying for folks at Trinity Grace, visiting folks at Trinity Grace, teaching folks at Trinity Grace, um, on a one-on-one personal basis. Mm-hmm. They're also in charge of guarding the vision and mission of the church. Uh, they're in charge of the finances of the church. Um, they're in charge of uh, receiving and dismissing members of the church um, and making decisions, um, yeah. proving budget and all those sort of things. Um, and so um, looking forward to that day when yeah. we move in that direction. And there's no set number. Um, okay. And so you have some churches that have dozens of elders. They tend to be larger congregations. And churches our size tend to have uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of you know, two to five elders. Okay. Um, and so um, there's no uh, prescription. Uh, you really want to identify the men in your midst um, who you believe God has called to this task. Sure. And God might have given us eight but he might have given us two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's a discernment process okay. for each congregation. So we have these elders, and they are, they're elected largely by the congregation, and they're in charge of, of the day-to-day operations of, of the church and the work of that church. But that same structure could be held by um, a church that has a local church that is part of a more congregational structure. Yes. So where does the difference come in? Yes. In our denomination, the difference comes in in the fact that there's layers of authority on Mm -hmm. top of the local church. And so you're right. There are local churches, even in San Antonio, that have a Presbyterian form of church government, but they stop at the local church. In the Presbyterian Church in America, which is our denomination, we've got three different courts of the church or three layers of authority. And so the first layer or the center of the onion is really the local church. It's the local session, Mm -hmm. the five, the two, the 12 elders that make up that local church's governing board. Um, Above and beyond that, we have uh, the court of the church known as the presbytery, which is regional in nature. In our case, it stretches from Austin over to College Station down through San Antonio into the border. And there's about 25 different churches that gather quarterly, mm-hmm. once every three months, uh, in order to make decisions, to hear reports, to examine candidates for ministry. Um, and uh, and that's the second um, court of our denomination. What are some more examples of things that the presbytery handles that the local church doesn't? Well, the presbytery is actually what ministers. It's the court that ministers are responsible to. And so me, as a minister, I am held accountable and I'm responsible theologically and practically when it comes to ministry to the presbytery. Mm -hmm. And so if there's ever an issue with a minister, um, then the congregation will actually take that complaint or that concern not to the local church, but to the presbytery 
uh, and in in the presbytery handles okay. um, those kind of complaints or concerns. Um, and so I'm technically not a member of Trinity Grace Church. Mm. I'm a member of our presbytery. Gotcha. Okay. My wife and my kids are members of Trinity Grace Church and under the oversight of the session of that church eventually. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I hold my membership at the presbytery level in our church government. Are there members of the presbytery that are not ministers or are the only members of the presbytery Minister. Yes. Um, so there are teaching elders. Uh-huh. Um, all teaching elders are a part of a presbytery. And then each church is allowed to send a certain number of ruling elders as delegates to each presbytery meeting. Okay. And that depends on your size, how many ruling elders you get to send. What is the difference between a teaching elder and a ruling elder? Um, a teaching elder is a minister of the gospel, okay. somebody that's been to seminary, somebody that's been through the examination and ordination process. So that's you. And that's me. Okay. Somebody who preaches the word and administers the sacraments. Yep. Um, and a ruling elder are those men that are elected by the congregation okay. to oversee that congregation in gotcha. spiritual matters. Okay. Um, and so it's really two office, uh, one office, um, two roles, ruling elder and teaching yeah. elder. Um, and then above the presbytery, uh, we have got uh, what we call the general assembly. It's the third court, which meets once a year. Uh, normally in the month of June, this this year we're meeting in Dallas, and uh, we meet there to basically hear reports from our denominational committees, our campus ministry, our missions ministry, our church planting ministry, uh, and then we also meet in order to discuss uh, certain issues um, that are relevant to the church in this day and age, uh, and if there's ever um, uh, a need for a change in our constitution that takes place at the general assembly mm-hmm, level. Mm-hmm. You can't change the BCO, our book of church order, uh, unless it's ratified at the, the general assembly level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are the three courts of, yeah. <laughs> of our denomination. We are not just rogue. Uh, we mm-hmm. have got uh, layers of authority um, and, uh, and accountability, which yeah. should be comforting to Everybody involved at Trinity Grace, and it's also comforting to me personally. Mm-hmm. So within this system, to what degree might you find two churches in the PCA? Um, how different can those two churches be in terms of in terms of just kind of culture and attitude, mm-hmm. but also in terms of like doctrine? That's a great question. Uh, in our denomination, you cannot find much difference theologically and doctrinally. Okay. Because all of our teaching elders and ruling elders have to subscribe uh, not only to the scriptures of the Old and New Testament, but also to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechisms, which we believe faithfully explain what the scriptures teach. Mm -hmm. Um, On top of that, they also have to subscribe to our Book of Church Order, Mm -hmm. which basically lays out our form of church government and our practice of worship. And so um, you don't get a whole lot of theological differences in our denomination, which is good, mm-hmm. um, but you do get a flavor difference. Okay. Um, some churches focus uh, a little more on outreach than others. Uh, some churches might have a, a focus on mercy and missions, um, whereas other churches might not focus on that as much. And so the philosophy of ministry and the culture can be very different from church mm-hmm. to church. Okay, yeah, that's that's really helpful. So. Just in summary, um, if a person is asked tomorrow what it means to be a Presbyterian, it's basically that 
the church is governed by elected elders. Mm-hmm. Those and and that church is part of a collection of churches that make up a presbytery, mm-hmm. and the overall denomination is governed by the general assembly. That's yep. Perfect. This this is remarkably federal. It very <laughs> much mimics the U.S. system of government. Yeah. Um. In fact, uh, so James Madison. Um, one of his mentors was a Presbyterian pastor. And so this comes through James Madison being kind of the father of the constitution and one of the great minds behind setting up kind of the Republican structure of our government, um, small R Republican. And, uh, yeah, so it's just funny how this comes through. That's, yeah, it is funny. Yeah. In, in fact, um, and, and I got to credit Jameson Moore for this little tidbit, but, uh, English papers in England during the time of the American revolution referred to it as the Presbyterian revolt. <laughs> I did not know so that, but Jameson is full of historical facts and tidbits. Yeah, that, that's that's as good as like a seal of authenticity if it comes there you from. Go. Yeah. So, um, well, I think that's a good spot to wrap it up for this week. So, I think next week we'll probably talk a little bit more about um, what the PCA is and what it means to be a church plant, specifically mm-hmm. in the PCA, mm-hmm. and just some of the nuances in there and kind of what all that means and. And how that fits into this governmental structure that we've that we've been discussing this week. So, yes. um, but as always, guys, as as you have questions about the sermons or as you have questions about Christianity more broadly, we want to take those seriously, and we will always have a spot at the beginning of this podcast uh, to go through all of your questions and and try to offer a response to those. So, as you have questions, or if you've got an idea for a future topic or mini series that you'd like us to tackle, you can email those to michael at trinitygracesa.org or text them anonymously to 210-920-0783. Until next time, this has been TGC Midweek. Thanks for tuning in.